gentlemen. We continue in our worship now in the Word of God, a look and study of it. So take your copy of God's Word that you have with you and turn to the book of Romans. Book of Romans. If you're visiting with us, another warm welcome. And also a note to you, if you do not have a copy of God's Word, just look in front of you in the racks in front of you. You'll see one there, please. Take one, follow along with us. Turn to the book of Romans in the New Testament, first chapter, Romans 1. This morning, in our study, we come to the pinnacle of this letter's opening. This is the pinnacle. In the verses set before us today that we arrive at today, we will see presented the culmination of what we have studied to open this letter thus far. Crescendo is here, and it is this, it's the gospel of God. Remember, we've been introduced to the gospel of God in verse 1. The gospel of God. What we learned about the gospel of God, we learned that it was promised, remember, beforehand, verse 2, through God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures, in the Old Testament. The gospel is not a New Testament thing. The gospel is promised beforehand. There's nothing new here. This is not new news. It's old news that's always been good news. Good news. The gospel of God, we also learned, concerned God's Son, the Son, the Seed. Said that way, as we think of lineage, the seed that descended from David, from his line, according to the flesh. We miss the lineage and the seed according to the flesh, the text says. In other words, from the line, God come down, yes, but here was the emphasis there, Man, man, fully, totally man, fully God, fully man. The gospel of God, which is also the gospel of God's Son, speaking of seed, the gospel of Christ, because it concerns the Christ, declared to be the Son of God, remember, verse 4, in power, in power. Christ raised in powerful declaration by, the text says, the spirit of holiness, The Spirit of God, Holy Spirit. We studied also the reality presented in these opening verses that the gospel of God comes with a charge and it comes with a commission. And that is embedded in the concept of apostleship. Apostleship, of course, is the ministry of being sent. That's what we mean by apostleship. First, by way of official office, capital A, Paul and the apostles, then, later, us, all given, either by office or just by virtue of being members of the church, the grace of apostleship, the grace, the free gift to be saved, and remember, not left there, to be saved and to be sent by God. That's a grace. As we learned, saved and sent to bring about what? The obedience of faith. Not the obedience of law, the obedience of faith. This is the obedience that is faith. We looked at that. Faith is not true faith if it's not obedient. It's actually not faith without obedience. The obedience of faith we also noted for the sake of his name. Do you remember that? There in the opening verses. Because the name of Christ is the name above all names. The name of Jesus Christ is the only worthy name. 
And church, we live the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name and more so that his name would be called on, the only worthy name, the beacon of hope to the nations, called on in the nations, among all the nations. As it was to those nations gathered in that large ancient city of Rome, the beloved saints there, where in turn their faith then was proclaimed in all the world. We talk about the big ancient city, the world was there, and those in the city going out into all the world, and their faith was proclaimed in all the world by way of, we looked at this last time, the ministry of proclamation for the Roman saint then and for us saints today. It's the ministry of being saved and sent. That's what we're talking about in the gospel of God. Being saved and sent by grace to proclaim, remember, thankfulness, to serve him wholeheartedly, and to support one another, as is in line with our obligation. Beloved, that is the gospel of God. In its Christ and in its commission. And so we've been ascending a mountain as this letter opens. We've been climbing, have we not? As mentioned already this morning, we arrive at the summit. We are here in these verses. And the view in these next two verses, as you look at them, verse 16 and 17, the view in these verses, these two, is simply majestic. The vista before us warrants a stop on the summit, not a quick descent. Laid out on the landscape before us is the great content of the gospel of God. Look at it. We see the power of God. We see salvation. We see the righteousness of God. And you see faith. These gospel pillars are introduced in these two verses this morning. Grand gospel themes that are unveiled to foreshadow where Paul is going to now go in this letter ahead. So let us behold them then. Look with me at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, these indeed are great, awe-inspiring truths. Father, grip us anew today in this word, which is your divine word. Let us see them for what they are, the great content of your gospel. Lord, let us receive them. Let us have them sink deep within us so that we can live out the truth of the gospel of God. We pray in the name of your Son. Amen. Again, look at them there. The power of God, salvation, the righteousness of God, faith. We will get to each one of those, but before we do, we need to notice first how they're introduced in verse 16. For many, these words are well known as they should be, right? This introduction to our manner of approaching the gospel. But we note them as we arrive at them here in our text. Paul says, verse 16, for, in light of all that he has said, as we've risen to the summit, for, in light of all that, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. 
Now, one response, if you've been tracking in our study, and some may do this, one response should be to say this, what is there to be ashamed of? Do you see that? If we've been tracking together in Romans, you say, well, what is there to be ashamed of? One could say, if I'm tracking with you, let me understand it, that we shouldn't be ashamed of good news from God, about God, the suggestion that's shameful. How are we ashamed of that? One could say. Ashamed of the truth that God Almighty grants grave victory, dust victory, and resurrection by way of Jesus Christ? Ashamed that God gives grace, something freely given, I can't earn it, can't work for it, and He gives that freely? And let me understand this, not given just to me or one, but a gift given, offered to the nations? What is there to be ashamed of? We could say more, but we do not need to. Westmont, we all understand the reality of feeling ashamed. It's an encouraging irony this week, reading about being ashamed for the gospel, of course, in study for this passage. And I say it this way, an encouraging irony, and it's this. It was the liberal guys, the guys that have long abandoned the Bible, yet want to comment on the Bible, It was the liberal guys that came to this text and they said, you know what, I don't understand this. Paul should actually say, I'm proud of the gospel. Liberal guys said that. No surprise, they went further to say this, as most liberals do, that the text was actually wrong. Someone amended the text. It should say, I am proud of the gospel. Liberals changing the text, what else is new? So-called wise men always looking for ways to correct God. And as usual, errant men, aberrant men, men that have long forsaken this text, missed it again. As we all do in our thoughtful, which are really thoughtless, boasts about Christ. I conversely was built up and encouraged to read right-thinking sound men, Christians with right understanding, one of whom said this, I quote, there is no sense in declaring you're ashamed of something unless you've been tempted to feel ashamed about it. I say it again, there's no sense in declaring you're not ashamed of something unless you've been tempted to feel ashamed about it. Is that not true? Why else would you say I'm not ashamed? Indeed, and I just simply need to say this, saints, each one of us know that temptation well if we're being honest. And we leave our thoughtless boasts behind and we be real with the text this morning. We understand what Paul is saying this morning. That is why our Savior and Lord, our omniscient Lord, gave this instruction to his disciples, Mark 8, 38, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now think about that as we move through this text. Just keep that in your mind, what Jesus says about he not being ashamed of those who are not ashamed of him. 
The temptation to be ashamed is a reality for Christ's imperfected followers, is it not? It's a very real reality, including the Apostle Paul who told the Corinthian church in the second chapter of the first letter after his declaration in verse 2, in his famous declaration, to know nothing, he declared he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He said this in the very next verse. This is what he said, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Paul knew Christ and him crucified, but the apostle also understood that such a truth was, as he would go on to say, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. To the Philippian church, he said this in Philippians 1.20, it is my eager expectation and hope, listen, that I will not be at all ashamed, Paul says. But that with full courage now, full courage, now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. What of his protege, Timothy? Maybe he would be the polished one. He would come along bolder, right, than Paul. Paul saved later in life. Maybe some mention Timothy for certain. If there's one that would never be ashamed, never tempted to be ashamed, it'd be Timothy. Consider the exhortation to his young son in the faith that are found in the second letter to Timothy. 2 Timothy 1.8, he says this, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And if that was missed, eight verses later, verse 16, Timothy, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. Those charges to Timothy not only use the same word there for ashamed, but they also reveal the fuller sense of the word. Let's dig in a bit here. Paul says, I am not ashamed, and his exhortation to Timothy is not ashamed. Even Christ, think of his words in Mark 8. That word is not referring to mere psychological shame. What do we mean by that? As if it's something akin to embarrassment. You get a little red-faced when God comes up in the conversation. That's not what's going on here, frighteningly so. In a sense, we have a way to get past that, don't we? There's something much more terrifying going on here about being ashamed. That's, there's a physical dimension, no doubt, but ashamed here, the word in the sense is this. Listen, it's the opposite here of confession. Do you see that? This is shame that shuts up. This is shame that says, I have nothing to say. I not only shrink away, I want to say nothing, I certainly don't want to confess my Lord. This is shame where one refuses to proclaim and declare and testify. Hence, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Insert paraphrase, Paul says, I will not shut up about our Lord. I am a Christian and I confess Christ. That is my belief, Paul says, I am not ashamed This confessional sense of not being ashamed is confirmed in other places, by the way. The same charge is found elsewhere in the New Testament to all of those found in Christ that would come after Paul. Think about what Peter lays out, to name one other apostle. 1 Peter 4.16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. What about the Apostle John, 1 John 2.28? And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. 
In other words, let it be your ongoing confession. Let that be true when he returns. You've confessed him and are not ashamed. This was the repeated charge to the first century Christian. Be not ashamed. Be not ashamed. And in part, that was because of the context of the New Testament churches. In fact, that environment continued, not just in the first century. I want you to listen to a sample of a letter dug up, found. This is a letter written in the second century by a man named Celsus. I want you to listen carefully how he describes Christianity. There will be much here that resonates, no doubt. Listen to this. He says this, quote, Let no cultured person draw near, none wise, none sensible, For all that kind of thing we count evil. But if any man is ignorant, if any man is wanting in sense and culture, if any is a fool, let him then come boldly to Christianity. That's the mock. Sounds like something you'd hear today, doesn't it? That's precisely what they say about you today. Those fools gathering on Clonsilla. You hear it said, only those lacking sense today, only those lacking the culture and an understanding and in a heartbeat of what's going on in culture, only those who are ignorant, only those of not a lower class but a different class, only those who are fools would ever embrace and drink up Christianity. I know you've heard that, or some version of, and beloved, nothing has changed. First century Second century today. Yet the world may mock and taunt, but the reality is, unbeknownst to them, this is precisely the message of Christianity, is it not? Is it not? This is precisely what God has said. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. In other words, yeah, I see that, but it's not for me. No, not that. It's folly. It's foolishness. They may say that to you, but it's folly to them. He goes on to say, but to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. What? I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise, God says? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? So many debaters today. Where are they? God calls them to court. Where are they? Where are they? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. There it is. To save those who believe. In other words, to save people through a foolish message in the eyes of the world. That's the wisdom of God. For Jews demand signs. You would say, who doesn't in this rational age? And Greeks seek wisdom. Who doesn't in this age of promoted secret? But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But it is that to those who think it's foolishness, but to those who are called. So these are God's chosen, His elect, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then this, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Brothers and sisters, we are not ashamed. 
What we confess is folly to the world. If we're not comfortable or understand that now or really recognize that now, we must and we must hurry to understand. There is no way to be relevant to the world. It's impossible. Let's stop this running to try and be relevant, try and be liked. We won't. It's foolishness. Even more insidious, by the way, if someone's throwing you a bone and saying, oh yeah, well, that may be for you. Listen, this text tells us underneath it all, they're saying, you're a fool. You're a fool. And this has never been more clearer than today. In fact, more than calling us fools, they want to protect the world from such foolishness. Indoctrinating others, passing laws about it. This goes far beyond just thinking we're a fool. They don't want anyone exposed to this foolishness. The world thus clings to its own testimony, its own wisdom, its own confession. We talked about this when we opened Romans. The righteousness of the world, the righteousness of man, that's what's going on today. The confession of culture, what they're not ashamed of, is to call evil good and good evil. Isaiah 5 verse 20, nothing's new. But that is not our confession. Westmount Saints, again, we're not ashamed. Christian, let us, like Paul in this text, declare a bold confession of the gospel. Let us be bolstered in these verses as Paul continues to lay foundations. Here we will see four reasons why we are not ashamed of the gospel. That's where we're going in these two verses. Four reasons why we're not ashamed of the gospel. They're the power of God, salvation, the righteousness of God and faith. Very clear, the peaks in these verses. So let's examine the first. Number one, the power of God found in verse 16. Again, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For, here's your reasoning, for it is the power of God. Stop there. For it is the power of God. I want you to look at that word power. Greek word behind that is dunamis, where we get the word dynamite from. That's a very helpful illustration this morning. Dynamite. It's a helpful word because We're talking about power and dunamis unlike any other. Think dynamite. All of man's power, his own effort, can get out all the pickaxes he wants. He can't burrow holes in rocks, can he? No, another power is needed. So it is, in a greater sense, with the power of God. Think all power now. Think omnipotence, all power. The power of God is the only power that can blow holes in the human heart. The power of God is the only power that can change man's fallen nature, here it is, and transform him and make him new. The power of God is the only answer when someone says, why won't they change? Because there's only one agent of true change, and it's the power of God. Only the omnipotent power of God can do that. The power of God is how this gospel message, the gospel of God, goes forth. 1 Thessalonians 1, 5. The power of God is what our faith, beloved, rests on, the fulcrum of our faith. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 5. The power of God is the power in which we live in weakness. Talk about a message antithetical today. That you and I live in weakness. 
a felt weakness, yet we live by way of the power of God. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, we know Paul's experience. Then, of course, in chapter 13, verse 4, the same idea. We live in weakness by the power of God. Yes, the power of God is where we derive our strength. Gary read from Colossians 1, think of verse 11 and verse 29 of that chapter. It's where the power of God is where we derive our strength. The power of God is how we fulfill every work of faith, the Bible says. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 11. Church, it is the power of God, as we sang this morning, that will raise us from the dead. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 14. The power of God, listen, is sovereign power, which means it's power that contests with none other. Sovereign power means it is the only power and the only power alone. It stands alone. It is the power that created the entire universe, the full cosmos created by the power of God, Jeremiah 27, verse 5. And I love the simplicity of the psalmist, Psalm 62, verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, what? That power belongs to God. That's it. Power belongs to God. As such, Westmount, the hope for mankind is found in no other power. There is no other power that we should be seeking because there is no other power. It's a futile search. No matter how strong you think you are physically, mentally, emotionally, you can't do it. You can't do it. You seek the power of God alone, not just for salvation. As this letter will also show us for sanctification. We will see all of this in Romans. Later in this letter, let's just take two examples. Chapter 5, verse 6, we will learn that while we were still weak, that is powerless. While we were still powerless and weak, at the right time, Christ what? Died for the ungodly. That's the message in Romans. In chapter 8, verse 3, we will learn that under the law, we are weakened by the flesh. The picture there is that we're rendered impotent by the law in our flesh, powerless. As such, helpless, save for God, sending His own Son, verse 3 says, in our likeness to deal with our sin. Thus, the power of God is the only hope for corrupt, lost, fallen man. Yes, the power of God, here it is, logically and theologically, is the only power to save. It's no surprise then to see verse 16 take us to our next reason to be unashamed. The power of God, that was one, two, salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation. Here, the intention of the power of God for something. So we can't miss that. The power of God, of course, is well-orbed, omnipotent, all of those things. Here, Paul is referencing it in the domain of salvation. The greatest demonstration, by the way, the greatest demonstration of the power of God with our eyes is salvation. It's the greatest demonstration of the power of God, and we know this. Salvation is a word that means precisely that. We don't need any other digging here. It means to be saved. That's what it means, to be saved. 
But this is where it gets practically important, not the least of which theologically important. Because the common response you hear when people are told that they need to be saved is what? You know it. Saved from what? Right? Have you heard that? That's fine, Jason. I don't need saving. Saved from what? I'm doing fine. In fact, if you look around, Jason, I'm actually doing much better than most people. I don't know what you're talking about. So let's take a moment then to understand what God is talking about. As Paul introduces salvation here to understand our need. First of all, by salvation, let's be clear, Westmount Saints, the Bible never has in view salvation from anything in this present life. Can I say that again? The Bible never has in view with salvation, salvation saving from anything in this present life. That's not what we're talking about. So immediately you recognize, well, what ballpark am I in? And that's where the first misstep occurs, to look here and now. Looking for the little traps here, looking for the peril here. That's not what the Bible is speaking about. God is far more concerned about what you might misstep here in this present life in a moment than where you're going to spend eternity. For sure, though, we need to say there are varying degrees of saving that happen in this life. And this is what muddles things in your conversations. We have firefighters. We have doctors. Why? Because they save lives physically. A bystander walks by, pulls the drowning man out of the water. He saved him. That's true. But that sense of saving is not what God is talking about in His Word. Do we get that? That's not what He's talking about. So if we're thinking that way, we'll always miss it. Someone will say, save from what? As such, if one only thinks of saving then in this way, here it is. They're going to think naturally, keyword, that they're doing just fine. Now listen on that. If you were in, to give you a greater sense here of a picture, if you were in some present trouble, if they were in some present life trouble, let's say that same person was drowning there, a little accident down by the lake, they're drowning, they're not swimming, they're going under, and you come along and say what? I can save you, you can be saved. Do you think they would listen to you? Why? They're going to listen in the water with arms flailing because in that moment they recognize what they need saving from. Do you see that? That's so important. Well, God then, with that picture, physically, let's go spiritually, tells all mankind, God says this in His God-breathed Word, that they're drowning spiritually. Their arms are flailing and they're sinking. God says your soul is lost. As such, salvation in God's Word refers to salvation, not of one's body, but of one's soul. So by salvation, God means salvation from the just penalty after death, that there's something happening spiritually, something coming after death that we need to be saved from. And what is that just penalty that we're all due that's coming for all mankind justly after we die? It is this, the wrath of God. I appreciate what Gary said this morning. It is we, rebels, we that declared war on God. We did it. As such, we're at war with Him. And the just 
payment for the war we've declared on our Creator is to get our Creator's wrath. And that is the destination, the just destination of all mankind after they die. Very unpopular, but very true. The wrath of God is what awaits men and women. Not the love of God after they die. Not the warm fuzzies of God as if God is patting you on the back. Well, somehow you made it through this life. Good on you. I don't know how you did that and that, but come on in. No, the just penalty for us upon death, beloved, is the wrath of God. Make no mistake about it. We can't fool around with this. This is serious business. We deserve the wrath of God. Now, in verse 18, Paul begins with the wrath of God, chapter 5, 2. So we'll have more to say there because the text has more to say. For now, we must remark what we need salvation from, and that's the wrath of God. Feeling uncomfortable and unpleasant doesn't make it not true. And the destination of those suffering that wrath is what? The destination then is hell. Is hell. And to be clearer, hell is not the big party where we all give Satan a little poke with his fork. I heard that recently, actually. I couldn't believe it. Someone believes that and more. We can thank media and their little cartoon red images of Satan for all that nonsense. It's tragic to think of that person when they get the wake-up call in eternal anguish to realize how wrong they were. By hell, the Bible means, to be clear, eternal separation from God. Not a momentary, intense burst. You've heard people say this, I can deal with a quick little annihilationism or whatever, and then it's all good. No. The Bible makes clear out of the mouth of Jesus, it's eternal, meaning anguish forever. Anguish forever. Anguish forever. That's where we're all headed upon conception in the womb. Psalm 51.5. From the womb. The place of eternal wrath is where we all deserve to be. By nature and by choice. Romans 5, we will learn why we deserve God's wrath by nature. We're going to learn that. Romans 6, we'll learn why we deserve God's wrath by practice. So we're sinners, positionally, before God saves us. In nature, that's our DNA, our nature, and it's our practice. Again, we said it a thousand times here, you do not need to teach a child how to be bad. That is bad news, isn't it? Real downer this morning, isn't it? It should be, it should be. It's bad news. Some of you might even say, I didn't come for this. And come to hear this. But you need to hear it. You need to hear it. Because this is where we are in the Word. All of us, me, you, all of us, born of woman, deserve this fate. And to compound the problem, if we needed more, to compound this problem, humanity, to compound this problem, beloved, to compound the problem, we are absolutely incapable of saving ourselves from this fate. Oh, how we like to think that we can get out of it. We're incapable of saving ourselves from this fate. 
Psalm 49.7 says, No man can ransom or save another. He is powerless. James 4.12 says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. By the way, that's not us. That, of course, would be God alone. None other can save, friends. This is the good news. Here's where we turn. This is the good news. Do you see why it's good news? Let me ask you something. Is it better news when we understand the bad news? Of course it is. This is the gospel of God. The gospel of God, it proclaims the power of God for salvation. It proclaims power to do what you and I cannot do in our best, best efforts. Still falling way short, the power of God does it for salvation. Yes, by God's power, friend, your soul can be saved. But you proclaim truth, the whole counsel, not every soul will be saved. There's no universal salvation here. Because some people then jump on that, launch off the good news, and say, see, we're all going to be okay. But we won't all be okay Only the soul, look at verse 16, that believes. Only the one that doesn't mock, but believes, is included in this salvation. To everyone who believes. This is the fuel of gospel spread, is it not? That we go out, bring the good news, because God is calling some. Not our words or our oratory. God has called some, and we know not who that will put down their arms, that will put up the white flag, and they will surrender under the gospel call, and they will believe. They're out there. Until the Lord returns, believe you me, they're out there waiting to be called. Paul makes sure that the historical scope, by the way, of the gospel program is given here. Let's not miss this. This good news was declared to the Jew first. Do you see that? Verse 16, remember a couple weeks ago, We talked about this, the Jew first, this gospel of God, verse 2, proclaimed beforehand to the Jew, through Jews, like the prophets in the Old Testament. It was promised beforehand to a people, to a nation. This power of God for salvation declared first to that nation, to the Jewish nation, as the Old Testament shows us. And then after that, chronologically, theologically, then also to the Greek. The Greek, we learned last week, when you look at that word, refers to all non-Jews, all other nations. It's like Jew and then non-Jew, in other words, Greek. So Paul's reason for not being ashamed of the gospel in verse 16 is the fact that it is the power of God for salvation to all mankind, to all nations, to everyone who believes. You see that? This is what he's not ashamed of. It's the power of God for any man, any woman, in any nation that they can be saved from eternal damnation by way of Christ's work if they believe in faith alone. He's not ashamed of that. The gospel, as we consider here at the end of verse 16, going out to all nations, the power of God for salvation to all nations, it's not a restricted call. It's not a targeted call anymore like in the Old Testament, just to the Jew. No, this is to the globe. God calls and elects from every nation. And we must consider this reality in light of verse 16. Creator God extends good news to every nation, declaring that men and women need not perish eternally apart from Him. It would be awful, terrible, 
tragic news if there was a period after the fact that we all are headed to the wrath of God, would it not? But saints, what is true of you must be declared to the nations. To escape the wrath of God in hell is possible through Jesus Christ. It's an offer freely given. Romans will show us this. We are not ashamed thus of man's only hope for salvation. Now we are not going to get to verse 17 this morning. It, it warrants far too much time to continue in this letter. Thus to cram it all into a few minutes would just simply be wrong. It'd be wrong to do that. Instead, in our final few minutes, let's turn to another spot in Romans. This will be helpful, hopefully, to seal verse 16. Turn to chapter 6 as we close. Chapter 6, picking it up in verse 20. This is a passage by word, and you'll know what word it is, that links directly to our passage this morning. So Romans 6, let me read these first two verses, verse 20 and 21. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things of which you are now ashamed is what? Death. Did you notice Paul says that there are things when we were slaves to sin, things that we partook of then that we now look at or we should look at now and what? We're ashamed of them. That's what Paul is saying. Yes, now, if you're a new creation, truly reborn, if you're the redeemed of Christ here this morning, genuinely, if you are his disciple, this means that there are things that you used to partake in that maybe come across your view now, and when they do, you thus, as a genuine, authentic believer, are ashamed of them. Do you see that? things we should be ashamed of. Now, to be clear this morning, I am not, or is this text talking of past shame? The Bible doesn't speak of the shame of sins now forgiven. In other words, shame just will continue to be a thing in the Christian life, the things that you and I did before Christ. That's not what's in view here. That's not the point. Listen, later in this letter, let's see this and echo this. You can turn to Romans 8 for a moment. This glorious truth, if we could put bright lights on this verse, we would. There is now no what? Condemnation, praise God, for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No one stands condemned. No, this shame that's in view... It's not that. This is the shame we should feel of the open practice, the laissez-fairness, the tolerance of sin today. This is what we should feel. But I submit to you, often we don't. This text says, back to Romans 6 for a moment, before we read those final two verses. This text says, in implication to us, Romans 6, 20 and 21, this text says, are you ashamed of those things 
And I don't mean, because the text doesn't mean this, that you just don't like it. You know what I mean? Well, that's just not my thing. I'm not into that, and I just don't like it. It's not my preference. No, this is shame. Confession, are you ashamed of it? Is sin's prevalence not the gospel, sin's prevalence, not the gospel, your shame? Now, remember, by that word we mean it is not your confession. It means you do not dare declare it. You say, of course not, I cannot stand the evil in this world. That may be so, but in your day-to-day living, in your ongoing bold confessions, are you now ashamed of the things with which you have been set free? That's what the text says. Or are they somehow, in some small tolerant way, still declared in your life? I mentioned on Wednesday evening the reality of sin tolerance among God's people. We've talked about this. That's not our confession, beloved. We are not ashamed of the gospel. In other words, our confession, our shame then, are the things that are antithetical to the gospel. The very sins we've been set free of, you and I must be ashamed of those. That's the point as Paul opens Romans. If then you are not ashamed of the gospel, then you will live out the gospel. If you are not ashamed of the gospel, then you will not give license to sin. If you're not ashamed of the gospel, then this too must be true. Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads, look at it, to sanctification and its end what? Eternal life. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is salvation and sanctification right there. That is Christ as both Savior and what? Lord, indeed, indeed. We'll continue next week as we look at the righteousness of God and faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how can it be, Lord, that us rebels would be called your children? How can it be, Father, that we have so great a salvation? How can it be that there is a power, your power, that sets us free, undeservedly so? God, help us to see that truth anew today. Please, Father, enable us to live in light of the the power that flows out of your, your Son, Jesus Christ, and who you are, and the work of the gospel, Lord. Let us see that, receive it. And live in light of that, we beg and pray now in Christ's name.